This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. So I know some of you might not have had time to read Buddha in the Future of His Religion, but I also wanted to just say a few things about that and introduce uh, Dr. Ambedkar's uh, a sort of very light introduction to Dr. Ambedkar. And really also what I wanted to do is uh, really start making the point about why Dr. Ambedkar is important not just for India, but for the um, entire Buddhist world or even the entire world cosmos throughout space and time. So I'll just start by sort of saying a few things actually just struck me when we were going around last night, and I remembered that um, when I was a teenager, I wanted to save the world. And it was, it was a tiny little bit unrealistic, uh, and perhaps idealistic. Um, but uh, yeah, I had a real burning passion to do that, and when I chose my A-levels, I chose geography, um, economics, and philosophy. And I was all sort of set up to do development economics at, at university. And then I basically realised that I was a total mess and that I needed to sort myself out as well, uh, possibly before trying to take on the entire world. Um, so, yeah, so I, I got involved uh, in Buddhism and went about um, trying to basically improve myself. And um, it was a bit like Taming of the Shrew, really. The Taming of Laura Mary Frances Hamilton. Um, but still I sort of had that very, very strong uh, burning passion for the, for the uh, change of society. And I think a lot of people have that. I don't think it was particularly unusual. I think what happens is over the time you become a little bit more cynical. Uh, so let's not do that. Um, but also it sometimes happens that those two parts of yourself, and people mentioned this last night, but that part of yourself that really wants to transform um, individually and part of yourself that really wants to transform society, you find it quite hard to integrate those two. And sometimes I think that's the real job of the spiritual life is, is how to integrate those two. But I don't think you can integrate those two by um, lessening the importance of one. In a way, we need to intensify both. We need to intensify our own personal transformation and the transformation of the world. And so... Uh, when I started, I, I had a job after school of um, data inputting, and I listened to all Banty's lectures, and um, that data inputting is really rubbish. So if you ever go to the 1996 editions of um, the uh, number of beds in every care home, residential care home in the country, uh, the 1996 version is wrong. <laughs> because I inputted it and I wasn't paying attention at all um, so I just sat there with his notebook getting very excited and I remember there was a series that Banty gave uh, on transforming self and world and I was just it was just like oh, I was so happy when I heard those series of lectures because it united this desire for personal transformation and also desire to uh, re really make a difference in the world and I think I had the same feeling when I came across Dr. Ambedkar that, uh, in a way, Dr. Ambedkar really shakes me out of my confined tree ratna world, actually. So uh, apart from that 
data inputting job and a few other bits and bobs. Basically, I've worked in the institutions of the movement all my life. Um, and, uh, you know, I can really kind of get my head down in Sri Ratna uh, and the institutions of the movement, which is great because someone needs to do that. But it's good for me also to study Dr. Ambedkar because he takes me out of that and makes me think a lot bigger um, and to see the potential of the Dharma uh, in not just my own world, not just in the order uh, and the movement, but also the potential of the Dharma in society. And uh, the teachings of Dr. Ambedkar make me deeply unsettled, which I really value, actually. Partly it's his use of language. Um, it's so strong, but also so eloquent that I really enjoy it because, um, yeah, it just stops me sort of settling down, really. Um, and, you know, I, 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 um, I found this letter that uh, Dr. Ambedkar wrote to Bhante after Bhante read Buddha and the future of his religion. And I sort of sent it out because I just really like that, those lines, you know, the bhikkhu should be in the first rank of the fighting forces. I'm glad that you set up the Young Men's Buddhist Association in Kalimpong, but really you should be doing much more than that. <laughs> and I think those words just go around and around. You should be doing much more than that. Much more than that. So the more I study Dr. Ambedkar, um, the, more, the, the deeper his thinking becomes. And I think he offers a vision of Buddhism that's essential if Buddhism is going to survive in the modern world. So I want to explore that briefly in this talk, why he's important, not just for India, but for the West and for the whole uh, world, actually, for the globalised culture. Um, so, yeah, so I really want to make that point strongly. Um, you know, we could talk in these two days a lot about Hinduism and the caste system, but in a way that's, that's kind of the point. That's where Dr. Ambedkar sort of sprung out of. But actually his teachings go much, much further than India, um, much, much further than um, uh, the oppressed Dalit people, much, much further than even for the oppressed. Uh, because I think Dr. Ambedkar draws out an essential aspect of Buddha's teaching and makes it, uh, uh, offers a vision. Um, he offers a vision for the new world, which I think is really important to take on. And yeah, this is just a taste, because there's a lot uh, you can read with Dr. Ambedkar. I think even I haven't sort of quite really understood the implications of his teaching. And maybe that's because, in a way, Dr. Ambedkar died <coughs> prematurely. And I think there was a lot more development even that he could have, he could have done. Um, he died so soon after his conversion to Buddhism. But yeah, hopefully this will offer you, offer you some sort of a taste of Dr. Ambedkar's teachings. So I thought I'd recap for um, at least some of you just to say who Dr. Ambedkar is in the background of that. I do recommend you read uh, Sangharachita's book on Dr. Ambedkar and Buddhism, which um, is out of print, but you can get it free as an e-book uh, on the internet. So um, Dr. Ambedkar was uh, born, well, he wasn't a doctor then, I suppose. He was Bimra Ranji Ambedkar. Uh, born in, um, nine, in 1891 in central India to an untouchable Hindu family. So I don't know how many of you know this, but Hindu society is divided into castes. And you've got the, the Brahmins, who are the priestly caste at the top, and the Shudras, who are the kind of labouring caste at the bottom. 
and all sorts of subdivisions in between. The, um, the British Raj were very fond of classifying all these castes, and there's just thousands of them. Um, I think that some of them actually the British made up, but never mind. Uh, and then you've got the untouchables that are even lower than the Shudras, uh, in, in the sense that they're outside the caste system altogether. And they're known uh, in, within the Hindu caste system as untouchables because any contact with them pollutes the so-called caste Hindus. Even sometimes their shadow can pollute. So it's a, it's a system of graded inequality. That's what Dr. Ambek called it, graded inequality. And the point about that traditional Hindu society is that castes are fixed. So once you're born into a particular caste, you can't get out of it. That's the kind of very traditional view. Um, and, you know, in, in many places regarded as deeply wrong to even try and get out of that system. So certainly in, in that very sort of uh, fixed idea of the Hindu caste system, um, your caste determines your job, who you can marry, who you can become friends with, even traditionally where you can walk, where you can get your water, whether you can get an education, whether you can enter the temple, uh, and what food you can eat. So um, it's a very, very seriously unequal and immoral social system uh, and deeply, deeply painful and um, unjust. Yeah. And many of us will have heard some of the uh, stories of violence and atrocities committed by people in, in higher caste to people of lower castes or, or even untouchable. Um, I should say at this point now, I'm going to change the language because uh, obviously it's not that anyone is untouchable. There is no human being that is untouchable to another human being. That's, uh, it's just this kind of false system. So what people usually refer to, people who were formerly known as untouchables in the Hindu caste system, are now uh, known as, as Dalits, which means suppressed, because obviously they were suppressed. They weren't actually, no one is untouchable. So yeah, um, so yeah, violence uh, is still and was at that time um, used to keep in place a much deeper problem. So we can hear about violence and atrocities, but I think in a way it's important to understand that that's the system that keeps in place a much more sort of sinister and underlying problem. And the sinister and underlying problem is uh, the denial of entitlement the denial of entitlement to land, wealth, knowledge, opportunity, social mobility, and even denial of entitlement to the spiritual life. So, yes, the stories of violence and atrocities, but they're, in a way, keeping in place something much, much worse, actually, in a, in a sense. And that's the true horror of caste. And it goes on, so I'm sure people who work from Karanar could, could tell you about how that goes on in India society, particularly in certain areas. Um, but it is weakening, and, and it was, well, mainly, uh, well, a lot due to Dr. Ambedkar himself, but uh, even in Dr. Ambedkar's time, it was weakening. So Dr. Ambedkar had a few factors in his favour, and one of them was access to in education, Partly because um, the British government, for all their many faults, uh, did one thing right at one point in history, and uh, <laughs> uh, which is they um, accepted Dalits into the British army, including Dr. Ambedkar's father. 
and Dr. Ambeka's father became a, an army schoolmaster. And he really encouraged Dr. Ambeka to work. So Dr. Ambeka's father got Dr. Ambeka up at 2.30 in the morning to study for exam his exams. Can you imagine trying to get an English teenager <laughs> up at 2.30 in the morning to study for their exams? Uh, so it says a lot about Dr. Ambeka's father. It says a lot about Dr. Ambeka that he actually got out of bed at 2.30 in the morning to study as a teenager. Uh, so he had his father, um, and he also had a sponsorship from uh, a very kind of uh, forward-looking prince of one of the princely states uh, in Baroda. And I think also, as, as I've said, you know, Dr. Ambeka had this incredibly determined character. Um, he was very much supported by his family, uh, and even his elder brother, who, who went out to work to earn money for the family while Dr. Ambeka really applied himself to studies. But Dr. Ambeka really did it, you know, an incredible intelligence. Uh, yeah, just incredible intelligence and, and very hard working. And um, just reading about his life, he lived quite a lonely life as a student in some senses. Partly at school, um, he was uh, separated. There was one other Dalit boy and they were separated from the other children in class. Um, and basically he was just never allowed to forget where he came from. Um, and he just worked. He wanted change, not just for himself, but for, for other Dalits. And um, he poured himself into his education in a big way. So he actually ended up coming um, to, he went to Columbia University in America and got an MA and a PhD in economics there. He also went to um, the London School of Economics and got an MA and a PhD in the London School of Economics. And then he became a barrister at law at Gray's Inn in London. So I don't think we're talking in a way about a normal sort of run-of-the-mill person here. We're talking about someone who's really, really applied. And um, in a way, a big question for him then was, what does he do, do with his education? So he, he called himself at one time the most educated man in India. So what was he to do with this, his education? So what he did is he tried um, political, economic and social strategies to not only end untouchability, but sort of drag India into the modern world um, and, and into being an independent state, obviously. So just to give you uh, an example of the social action, um, so this is, uh, this is a quite a famous incident called the Chowder Tank. And um, in the past, the Dalek community were not allowed to take water from this tank uh, until 1927 <coughs> when it was opened um, by the local mu municipality for uh, everybody. Only... Um, it was still, you weren't really allowed to drink there if you were, if you were a Dalit. So what uh, Dr. Ambedkar did is he led 3,000 people to go and to go to the tank. Well, tank means a kind of reservoir. Uh, go to the tank to drink, which was simple enough, you know, well, sort of simple in a sort of Indian way, 3,000 people coming to the same place and to just drink, you know, which was, it was like um, a local government place to take water. There's nothing exceptional about that in some sense. But it was a completely revolutionary act because he was coming with the Dalit community to drink out of the water. And he received quite a violent response from the high, higher caste Hindus. 
who regarded that water as being as having been polluted uh, by the so-called untouchables. So how did he? How did they then choose to purify it? Well, they added 108 um, sort of pots of uh, yogurt, milk, cow urine, and cow dung to purify the tank after other human beings had drank out drunk out of it. So there we go. That's what the caste system is like. <laughs> Completely bizarre. <laughs> um, yeah, and sinister actually. Uh, the other thing he did is he tried economic action as well. So uh, a, a big part of his early interest actually was about um, criticising the British government from, for impoverishing India through sort of economic fiscal methods. And basically he realised that um, the British government were running India on the basis of the British manufacturing industry's interests. And he wrote a lot about um, the rupee and exchange rates and things like that. I mean, unfortunately, he was just too radical for the time. You know, I don't think the British government were particularly enthusiastic about running India for the sake of the Indians. I don't think that was what the system was really about. Um, he also tried political action. So um, he's very famous uh, in India and beyond as being chair of the board that drafted the Constitution of India. I mean, he pretty much wrote the Constitution of India based on dharmic principles. So it's quite interesting that the, the constitution of India is based on dharmic principles. Um, and uh, he became the law minister of the first government of independent India. And what he tried to do is bring through parliament something called the Hindu Code Bill to change some of the really, really oppressive aspects of Hindu law, particularly to do with marriage and inheritance, particularly to do with women. Um, so he was he was bringing through that Hindu code bill to change the law, uh, you know, to bring bring India in line with the modern age, really, or to bring India in line with its own constitution. And he was met with serious opposition. And I think uh, so. It never got passed. Actually, it never got brought through. And I think this precipitated, or uh, yeah, it precipitated a serious internal crisis in Dr. Ambedkar. Because he had this wonderful con constitution that's based on Dharmic principles, and he could bring about a positive change in law. But um, nothing could really happen with all the social problems in India, and particularly in its attitude to caste and women. And he described the constitution at that point as a palace on a dung heap. And he, what he realised is that, that uh, more was needed. He said, history bears out the proposition that political revolutions have always been preceded by social and religious revolutions. The emancipation of the mind and soul is a necessary preliminary for the political expansion of a people. So the emancipation of the mind and the soul is a necessary, pre pre sorry, a necessary preliminary for the political expansion of a people. So that's a very, very important principle um, from Dr. Ambedkar. Um, what he realised is that we needed, uh, in order for society to change, there needs to be a change in the individual mind and soul. And the way he regarded it is that this, this was to come from Buddhism. 
So he decided to spend the rest of his life dedicated to the spread of Buddhism. And in 1956, he converted with 380,000 of his followers to Buddhism. So, um, you know, that's the kind of background. Uh, but I wanted to, to say something quite important, which is that um, he didn't do that as a kind of political statement. I think sometimes when you, when you go to India and you talk particularly to caste Hindus, they say, well, you know, it's just a political thing that he converted to Buddhism. Um, and actually, that's not why he did it at all. He was obviously a deeply, not only thoughtful and intelligent, but a religious and spiritual man. And it wasn't a sudden decision to, do, to um, convert to Buddhism. It was a, after a lifetime of thought and exploration. And in fact, Buddha and the future of his religion was written at the, around the same time as when he was drafting the constitution. So it's not a sudden thing because he was reactive against Hinduism and wanted political change. Um, he had a re real feel for the spiritual life. And you can, you can see this also from his um, very kind of free translations of the Buddhist scriptures. And, and he wrote a book called The Buddha and His, and his Dharma. And I think Dr. Ambedkar thought that religion was an essential part of life for everyone. It wasn't just a, a little add-on. It was an essential part of life for the individual and society. So... Um, what is the significance of his life for us and for the world? I think one of the things is um, Dr. Ambedkar represents in some ways the thinking of the modern man and woman. So uh, Dr. Ambedkar may have come from quite a unique background 123 years ago, born 123 years ago. But actually, he was highly educated and forward-thinking, and he questioned his inherited beliefs. And I think, in a way, this reflects the modern position. We've got access to an incredible amount of information, global information, and um, we don't want to just take on what our parents have thought. So he said, many persons throughout the world have exhibited an unprecedented piece of courage with regard to inheritance of their religion. And in a way, that was his position as well. He wasn't just going to take it on, uh, the caste system, Hinduism, whatever it was. Um, he wanted change, and he saw that um, you don't just have to accept wholesale what you've been given in society. And he also saw that in that questioning, uh, the modern man and woman or woman can throw out everything in a way. I think he, what he saw was that kind of creeping form of nihilism that could happen when you start questioning, where all higher values as, are discarded as meaningless or even uh, a form of uh, oppression, um, oppression of the weak by the strong. So he says, many have, as a result of the influence of scientific inquiry, come to the conclusion that religion is an error which ought to be given up. So he saw that was the potential of questioning. He saw that the potential of questioning is you could just throw out everything. But he didn't want to give a kind of premature answer to that inquiry. So he really valued inquiry. He encouraged inquiry. Um, you know, even for people who weren't as educated as he was, even people who couldn't read and write, even people who, who worked uh, manually. Um, 
it wasn't about your education or um, schooling as such. It was about um, the individual being able to question. And he emphasised a radical notion of personal responsibility. So there's a very, very interesting um, passage in Annihilation of Caste, which is uh, a paper that he wrote, um, where he talks about the difference between rules and principles. And he says that religion cannot be a matter of rules. So rules are where you just follow a habitual way of doing things. Um, you just receive, you know, uh, you have a kind of received wisdom, a, a received um, pattern of behaviour, and you just take it on whole, wholesale. Um, he says that religion must be a matter of principles, and it must require consideration, thought, judgment about what your purpose is and why you're doing it. And he said that r rules are just mechanical. You just do the same thing over and over again because you've been told to. And you're not taking responsibility for your own actions. Whereas principles are conscious and responsible. So he said religion must be a matter of principles only. It cannot be a matter of rules. The moment it degenerates into rules, it ceases to be religion as it kills the responsibility which is the essence of a truly religious act. So that's quite a profound thing to say. Um, responsibility is the essence of a truly religious act. So it's not about, you know, just uh, Dr. Ambedkar converting to Buddhism and you're my people, so you should all convert to Buddhism. He really had that emphasis on personal responsibility. And he said it might be that you even do something wrong. But if you do it on the basis of your own personal responsibility, um, it's a religious act. So that's quite interesting, isn't it? You make make a complete cock up. Am I allowed to say that? Is it safe? But you know, you may, and then we've done this. We've all made complete messes. But if we do it on the basis of consideration, thought, and judgment, uh, on the basis of principles that we stand by, in a way, that's the religious act. Whereas we could do something that's right, quote unquote, you know, and that is really good and great and everything. But if we do it just as a habitual act because we've been told to, uh, it's not a religious act. So it's quite interesting to reflect on that. It's quite similar to the, the Buddha's teaching about ethics being a, um, a path of training. And it's also very close to Sangharaksha's teaching on the true individual. So Buddhism does not set out to make people obedient followers. It sets out to help people to develop into individuals that are, are ethically responsible, aware and creative. So what Dr. Ambeka saw that is that the modern world is a unique time where it is possible to develop those qualities. It's possible to be ethically responsible, aware and creative. Um, because we can make use of our education and a world that shares information with each other and where people are in a position to think for themselves and not just take on um, what society has told them they should be or believe or do. So he saw there was a unique time in history where people were quite open, quite free to, uh, to think, but that they also had this, um, uh, you know, the danger of that was this kind of creeping form of nihilism and cynicism. Um, so within that emphasis on personal responsibility, he looked closely at all the world's religions and he chose Buddhism. 
He chose Buddhism as a free and considered choice on the basis of his own values. And why he chose Buddhism is documented in Buddhism and uh, the Buddha and the future of his religion. So I just want to highlight two of those reasons because I think um, they're the ones that appeal to kind of modern thinking. So yeah, so the first reason that he chose Buddhism is because it accords with science and reason. Um, so I think that uh, religion cannot go against reason because if it goes against reason and our own intelligence, we just can't believe it. Um, and we'll be shutting off from what we actually believe. So it's not that everyone in the modern world are scientists, but I think we're imbued with that perspective. We're imbued with a perspective on science that we can't just let go of. We can't just deny that kind of um, training, and nor should we. Um, it's part of our makeup. And if there's a religion that goes against our reason, that goes against our kind of uh, education in the sciences, we just won't believe it. We just won't take it on. He said, well, it can't really become a governing force because people on one level just won't believe it. So the second reason is that because Buddhism teaches the values of liberty, equality and fraternity. And I think these are values that are very, very important to the modern man and woman. So I just want to say a little bit about those. So liberty uh, is the freedom to make your own decisions about the course of your own life. So it's freedom to make your own decisions about your profession, who you marry, who you go out with, uh, your religion, um, who you're friends with, all those things. And... Um, that's very important to us because we're starting to really question what we want to do with our lives. And it's unacceptable to modern people to be forced to choose a lifestyle that we don't want. So that's one of the things we just deeply believe. You should be free to create your own destiny. And the thought that um, someone would tell you who you've got to marry and what profession you've got to do just because your father did it uh, is just completely unacceptable to us. And I think to have that kind of liberty about your own destiny, you have to be able to have informed choices. So one of the things that the Tree Ratna Buddhist order is, does is um, try and gives people real informed choices so that they can live any lifestyle that they want, but that they do so on the basis of a real choice. So that if you want to um, have a family, there's a context in which you can um, practice a spiritual life uh, in the family life and if you choose not to get married and have a family there's a real alternative available to you so that you can still have deep intimate kind of relationships with people uh, for example living in a community and that if you want to um, follow a career you can practice the spiritual life within that career but if you want to work together with other Buddhists that's also an option available to you so that's what I kind of think about myself doing a lot uh, in ordination tra training, is he helping people, particularly young people who are making choices all the time, have a real informed choice about what they want to do. That if they want to have a baby, well, that's fine, but really think about what that means and how you can practice a spiritual life in that context. And if you want to, um, you know, save the planet or work with other Buddhists or in an ethical environment then um, you have a real informed choice about how to do that. So the second thing is, is equality, so liberty, equality. And um, 
Equality is where every individual respects the individuality of the other. So Dr. Ampeka's point was that everyone should have the same opportunities, whatever circumstances they're born into. And he said, well, you might not make the same use of those opportunities. You know, people do vary in ability. Um, but if we, uh, if we don't have equal opportunity as a starting point, the selection in society will be based on what he called the selection of the privileged rather than the selection of the able. So what that means is that, uh, in a way, he was uh, envisi envisaging a society in which the determining factor of who you are in that society is based on your ability, not based on your privilege, not based on um, just what family you were born into. And I think, again, this is a very, very important uh, um, value for uh, modern people, that everyone should have equal opportunities and equal starting point. And he also talks about fraternity, so seeing all people as my people uh, and uh, having communication and a sharing of interests so that society can change, so that you're able to communicate with other people in the society, in all levels of society, uh, all people in society. He called this um, social endomosis. And he said it's more than that. It has to be based on mitri or what we would know as meta. And he said, in a way, fraternity is what keeps society together because um, that's what really su sustains equality and liberty. Um, if you don't have fraternity, uh, you'll have to enforce liberty and equality by the rule of the state. You'll have to enforce those things by um, policing them. And you can't police the whole of society. So in order for society to function on the basis of equality and liberty, it has to be underpinned by um, meta, by mitri. So, yeah, and I think, um, he, yeah, he said an ideal society should be mobile, should be full of channels for conveying a change taking place in one part or two other parts. In an ideal society, there should be many interests consciously communicated and shared. He said an ideal society is primarily a mode of associated living of conjoint communicated experience. It is essentially an attitude of respect and reverence towards one's fellow men. And when I read that, um, you know, many interests consciously communicated and shared, it reminded me actually of the Arab Spring and how, particularly through social media, people are interested globally. They're interested in the concerns of other people, maybe even particularly uh, other young people, throughout the world. We don't just think about our own lives. We think about other people as well. We think about what's going on in other countries. We have a kind of deep feeling and empathy um, for people perhaps living in oppressive regimes who want change. And that's reflected through social media, particularly sort of sharing on Facebook and Twitter and um, things like Avaz. Is that how you say it? Avaz. Um, so, yeah, so like just looking through Facebook... Well, there's quite a lot of personal information on there, but there's also a lot of people sharing things that are nothing to do with this country. And in a way, I think that's in, it's somehow what, what um, Dr. Ambeka was al almost predicting that society could become like, where we're um, full of channels for conveying change. Um, 
and that that's not coming from the top down, that's from a grassroots level. So it's uh, between individuals as well. So that's fraternity, and I think, again, that really reflects a kind of modern, globalised culture where information is freely available very, very quickly, particularly on social media. So Dr. Ambeka represents the modern man or woman who values res personal responsibility, values science and reason, who values liberty, equality and um, metta or fellow feeling. And the reasons that he chose Buddhism are therefore the reasons that the modern man and woman should choose Buddhism. So you might want to think about this and talk about it in your group as well, because it might um, sit uncomfortably with us that um, Dr. Ambedkar, because he chose Buddhism for himself, he, ch he thought it was best for everyone. Um, so he wasn't just saying, this is the best religion for me. He was saying this is the best religion for modern people, generally, uh, for everyone. And I think we can that leap can be uncomfortable for us um, because we tend to see religion as quite a private affair. But maybe we could reflect on that. If it's the best for us, why should it not be the best for everyone else? So that's a little question you could just, just talk about. I think Dr. Becker also went further in his thinking than that. He went further even in his thinking than um, modern men and women. Um, because he saw the potential of what Buddhism can do in society. He saw that Buddhism can become a force for good in the world. So, going back to what I said before, he saw that um, law, politics, economics aren't enough. He said, in a way, he was saying you could have the best system in the world, the best constitution in the world, but it will be a palace on a dung heap if society isn't united on the basis of liberty, equality and fraternity. And what unites society on the basis of liberty, equality and fraternity? Well, he saw well, what unites society uh, on those values is a system of ethics based on meta and personal responsibility. So you need a religion, that's his point, is you need a religion to pull people together. Otherwise, those values are enforced by law, and you cannot possibly enforce everybody by law. Um, so you need a religion that's based on meta and personal responsibility. You need a religion that's based on the values of liberty, equality and fraternity. And he saw that Buddhism offers that system. So actually... Um, one of the things that Dr. Ambedkar said is he didn't get the values of liberty, equality and fraternity from the French Revolution. He said he got those values from my master, the Buddha. That's quite a, a thing early on he said as well before he converted to Buddhism. And one of the things he made the point is that you can't take ethics and metta out of Buddhism. So it doesn't matter what people are, who people are, what they do to you. Uh, it doesn't matter what religion people belong to. You cannot take ethics and meta out of Buddhism. You cannot behave unethically towards them. You have to always relate to them on the basis of the precepts, the five precepts and on meta. So that ethics is a very, very essential part of Buddhism. And he also saw that in Buddhism, um, meta and um, shila, ethics, aren't humanist values. So when he's talking about those, those qualities of liberty, equality and fraternity, of ethics and meta, 
he's not talking about um, just humanist values because he saw that they have to be based on transcendental realisation. And by that, um, what he means is that society has to be united on the basis of a greater vision. Society has to be united on the vision that all beings can gain enlightenment. All beings have the potential for transcendental realisation. And it's only a society based on that transcendental vision that can be truly free. So um, it's interesting that I was reflecting on that point because uh, reading the Parinibbana Sutta recently, and um, which actually incidentally is one of uh, Dr. Ambedkar's favourites, but the Mahaparinibbana Sutta starts with a sort of image, and it starts with the image of the Buddha on the vulture's peak in uh, outside, just outside Rajgir. And King Ajatasattu is about to wage war against the Vijians. And um, he sends his minister up to the Buddha to see if he's going to win. So it's quite an interesting image, actually, if you think about it. There's the Buddha on the vulture's peak, which some of you may have been to. It's, you know, it's, quite, it's fairly high up um, uh, on the hills surrounding what would have been a you know, great city. And there's the Buddha, you know, living in the open air, a kind of dusty beggar. And this king's minister kind of climbs up the hill and he wouldn't have been able to take a carriage or a chariot or whatever he was used to. He'd have had to have walked through the jungle up to the Buddha. And um, so that's quite... You can't quite imagine... I sort of have a, have a vision there of David Cameron um, <laughs> in a suit, you know, having to walk on foot up to this dusty beggar on the vulture's peak uh, through the dust and the heat to ask if he really can wage war against the dot, dot, dot. Um, and the Buddha said, basically, you haven't got a chance. You haven't got a chance because the Vijayans um, are a society based in harmony who honour transcendental values, who honour um, spiritual practitioners. And I thought, well, that's quite interesting, isn't it? He said, the only way you could ever, you can never defeat them by arms. You could only defeat them by dividing them. And what he's saying there is that if you've got a society based on transcendental values, if you've got a society that, in his words, honours the arahants, honours enlightened beings, and meets in harmony, you cannot defeat them. And that's his vision of kind of unified society, a society based in harmony in transcendental values, honouring the arahants. And that's Dr. Ambedkar's vision in a way. He's got a vision of a pure land based on uh, democratic values. And he said that democracy is more than a po political machine. It's more than a form of government. It's even more than a social system. It's an attitude of mind or a philosophy of life. It's essentially an attitude of respect and reverence towards one's fellow men. So that's Dr. Ambedkar's vision of society. It's a society based on true democratic values, which is more than a system of government. It's um, an attitude of respect and reverence towards others. And he said that Buddhism is a revolution, um, more than even a, a religious uh, revolution, it's a social revolution. It's not a private affair. So it's not that we build a better society so that we can practice Buddhism, or even other people can practice Buddhism. And it's not that we're good Buddhists so that we can help society. 
in a way the practice of Buddhism is integral to society and in society is integral to the practice of Buddhism. We're part of a much larger web of conditions. And to transform ourselves, we have to transform society. And to transform society, we have to transform ourselves. That transformation goes hand in hand. And I think this is really the significance of both Dr. Ambedkar and Sangharachita's teachings, is this unification of transformation of self and society. They're not two separate things. Um, and uh, yeah we need this kind of confidence because the, the other thing that Dr. Ambeka gives us is this confidence that the Dharma itself is a force for good in the world he says uh, the duty of a Buddhist is not merely to be a good Buddhist his duty is to spread Buddhism um, they must believe that to spread Buddhism is to serve mankind so it's quite a statement, to spread Buddhism is to serve mankind. Because usually in the West what we do is we separate out religion and social work. So thinking about the younger generation, the younger generation think communi communally in a way that our parents didn't actually. Um, the younger generation care much more. They care much more about the environment. They care much more about freedom of speech. Um, freedom of the individual. Um, they care about freedom from poverty and oppressive regime. Um, and then they also care about their own spiritual life and about inner transformation and sort of ethical values, personal ethical values. But what the younger generation and kind of the modern world do is that they mistrust unifying those two values. And that's partly historically in the West because of the Reformation. So uh, the Reformation saw what damage kind of religious crusades can have in the world. So what they did is they divided religion and so, um, social work so that religion becomes a, a very, very private affair, even a bit like you don't really want to talk about it that much. Uh, Dharma Shalom mentioned not talking about it at work. That's a very kind of conditioned response from the Reformation, actually. It's a bit like, you know, it's our own personal business, our religion. And then what we do in society uh, happens in a completely different sphere. But we need to unite those two values. We need to unite transformation of self and transformation of world. Because there's a big danger in Buddhism. There's a big danger in Buddhism that we're heading for a kind of Buddhism based on Western consumerist values. So what Buddhism, the danger of Buddhism is that it enables us to stay in the comfortable middle class, um, to stay comfortable and detached in a modern consumerist changing world. So there's a, there's a Slovakian philosopher called Žižek, and he's very interesting because he's very vocal in criticising Western Buddhism. So I really recommend read as much criticising of Western Buddhism that you possibly can. Because it's really good, actually. I'm a nice person. <laughs> it's such a tolerant religion. Um, anyway, he says, one of the things he says is, he, he says that uh, modern Western Buddhism enables you to fully participate in the frantic pace of the capitalist gain while sustaining the perception that you're not really in it. 
Um, sustaining the perception that you are well aware of how worthless this spectacle is and that what really matters to you is the peace of the inner self to which you know you can always withdraw. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 